Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Improving Interprofessional Management of Sickle Cell Disease with Disease-Directed Therapies, is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this educational activity titled Improving Interprofessional Management of Sickle Cell Disease with Disease-Directed Therapies. I am Dr. Fuad El-Rasi, Associate Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Emory University and Director of the Sickle Cell Research Center at the Georgia Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center at Grady Health System in Atlanta, Georgia. First, a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. And then, my financial disclosure information. During this activity, we will look at the burden of sickle cell disease and the latest safety and efficacy data for novel SCD therapies. We will also review how to use these options to manage the symptoms of sickle cell disease and prevent and treat its complications, including vasoclusive pain episodes and acute chest syndrome. Let's get started. Setting the stage, understanding patient and societal burdens of sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease uh, was first coined in 1910, and it was noted on a smear performed on a patient who was a medical student, a dental medical student at one uh, at University of Chicago and it was described to be peculiar, elongated, and sickle-shaped red blood cells in a case of severe anemia. And since then, there has been much more understanding into sickle cell disease. We now know that a single point mutation at the sixth codon of the beta-globin gene, uh, replacing glutamate by valine, leads to the inheritance of the sickle gene. And in individuals who have the gene, they need to have two expressions of this gene to have sickle cell disease as we know it. A single expression of one gene from one of the parents will give you a sickle cell trait. And compared to the population uh, of, of different genotypes of sickle cell disease, the percent expression of SS disease is about 65% of the population. Uh, the SC disease population is 25%. And then the S-beta-0 thalassemia and S-beta-plus thalassemia are both at 5%. And these populations correlate with the severity of the disease as we know right now, with SS disease being the most severe and S-beta plus thalassemia being the least severe. And life expectancy is accordingly correlated with the severity of the disease. The global distribution of the sickle cell gene is seen in this graph. We notice that in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Indian Peninsula and in Arabia, we see a lot of presence of the sickle gene. And this goes along with the malaria endemicity map uh, seen at the bottom here that correlates with the malaria transmission. In the United States, the sickle cell disease population is estimated at around 100,000 individuals, 60% adults, 90% black, and 10% Hispanic. And the genotype distribution in the United States at birth, 60% of the patients have SS disease, 30% have SC disease, and 10% have S-beta thalassemia. And in adulthood, at age 30, 50% of the patients are SS, and at age 60, 25% of the patients are SS disease. Sickle cell disease is a chronic disease that has been ne neglected for far too long. Uh, those affected by the disease are among the most vulnerable, 
and underserved, and the disease has a profound impact on their lives. It is imperative that we vastly improve the circumstances under which care is provided for the patients with sickle cell disease. And this was all based on the 2016 report on the state of sickle cell disease that came out from the American Society of Hematology. Evaluating contributing factors and causes and the pathophysiology of the sickle cell disease and various subtypes. When we're looking at sickle cell disease, uh, there is multiple pathophysiologic pathways that are involved that we keep to decipher uh, up until now in terms of the mechanism of how this disease affects its individuals. But what we know from this uh, graph that we see here published by Dr. Tellen uh, in Blood in 2016, that there is this vicious cycle of hemolysis uh, that's caused by the destruction of the red cells because of their shortened lifespan that leads to the activation of adhesive interactions between the red cells, the platelets, and the endothelium that propagates and drives the inflammatory stimulus that leads to further activation of endothelial cells, platelets, and white blood cell activation, leading to more inflammation, activation of coagulation, and adding more to this vicious cycle of hemolysis and activation of the cells. However, the molecular pathophysiologic outline of sickle cell disease is even much more complicated. We know in this graph, published from Snod et al. in 2019, that hemoglobin S polymerization is at the root cause of sickle cell disease. And in fact, it drives the two other hand-in-hand -hand mechanisms that are involved, hemolysis and sickling. Hemolysis leads to endothelial dysfunction by leading to a state of nitric oxide consumption and reduction and leads to free heme, which is causing to the sterile inflammation that's existing in the circulation. And sickling itself also leads to the vasoocclusion and the impaired rheology or blood flow uh, of the sickle red blood cells, leading to further adhesion and interaction with the white cells, the platelets, and the endothelium, leading to more ischemia reperfusion injury, all linking back to sterile inflammation that's happening. And, and at this moment in time, more understanding of this molecular pathophysiology of sickle cell disease keeps being deciphered. Overview of acute and chronic sickle cell disease complications by organ system understanding current and downstream implications. When you look at the contribution of intravascular hemolysis to vasculopathy and vasoocclusion, the molecular pathway is so detailed, as you can see in this graph published by Cato et al. in 2017, that so many different factors are involved, and so there's so many different targets that can be affected with hemolysis from having haptoglobin as a target or hemopexin as a target or even uh, the anti different antioxidants uh, related to be a target to help reduce hemolysis and the cycle of sickle cell disease. In addition, vasoocclusion is a key part, as shown before, in the activation of the sickle cell painful events. Vasoocclusion can be summarized from this graphic from Current Opinion Hematology in 2019, uh, showing the red blood cells interacting with the sickle red blood cells, the neutrophils, the platelets and the endothelium, all going hand-in-hand hand together um, with what we call activation of the selectin pathway to lead for further propagation of vasoocclusion and sickle cell disease. Both mechanisms of hemolysis and vasoocclusion lead to a combined multitude of complications in sickle cell disease, as seen here, where you can have acute and chronic complications that can happen in the patients with sickle cell disease. These complications can uh, vary from retinopathy, uh, cardiomegaly and diastolic heart failure to pulmonary hypertension, albuminuria, avascular necrosis, 
uh, chronic pain, functional asplenia, anemia, and neurocognitive dysfunction in the chronic sense, to acute events such as acute stroke, um, sickle cell hepatopathy, acute chest syndrome and acute painful events, bone marrow infarction, priapism, and splenic sequestration in the uh, acute events that can happen. The combination of these uh, complications that arise in sickle cell disease leave the patient with sickle cell disease suffering from a lot. The sickle cell world assessment survey results showed the impact of sickle cell disease on the patient's daily lives. VOCs, which are considered the hallmark of sickle cell disease, are quite unpredictable. Uh, they lead to severe events with life-threatening complications, and they're the main reason why sickle cell disease patients go to the emergency department or are admitted to the hospital. On average, the patients experience more than five VOCs each year, and more than 90% experienced at least one, of one VOC in the previous 12 months. In this survey of 2,100 patients and 300 clinicians, there was 11,000 VOCs reported, and 25% of those were managed at home, 33% were resulted in a hospitalization, and a quarter of the patients avoid seeking medical assistance due to poor hospital experiences or poor perception by healthcare professionals or the pain being too severe for them to leave home. Understanding the implications of vaso-occlusion and vaso-occlusive crisis in sickle cell disease. As you all know, pain is the hallmark of sickle cell disease. It is the primary reason people seek care, and it is because of vaso-occlusion, and it is present throughout the life of the patient with sickle cell disease. And on the left-hand side here, this uh, drawing by uh, Hertz-Nazaire, uh, the late uh, famous artist with sickle cell disease, depicts how patients really experience the pain uh, in sickle cell disease and how it really affects uh, and, and has a huge impact on their life. However, what we have to remember is not all pain is VOC pain and not all pain is sickle cell disease-related pain. So VOCs, what are they? What do they do? Why do they occur? Normal red blood cells are donut-shaped red blood cells. They're flexible, they roll through the vasculature, and they supply oxygen and nutrients to the body. The red blood cells with sickle hemoglobin have different properties. They're more sticky, they can interact with the endothelium, and lead to activation uh, of the different um, vaso-occlusive events um, by interacting with the blood vessels. The white blood cells and activated endothelial cells can also trigger adhesive interactions with the sickle red blood cells other white blood cells, and platelets due to chronic vascular damage. Blocking of the small blood vessels results in vaso-occlusion. And VOCs are the recurrent episodes of vaso-occlusion that can lead to severe, unpredictable acute pain that may require a hospitalization. The long-term impact of vaso-occlusion on organs is huge. So ongoing vaso-occlusion and VOCs are associated with an increased risk of organ damage, organ failure, and death. Damage occurs due to vaso-occlusion, leading to lack of oxygen, blood vessel damage, and secondary complications. Ongoing inflammatory response, cell activation, and multicellular adhesion contribute to the tissue damage. Vaso-occlusion and VOCs are associated with decreased organ function and can result in life-threatening complications, such as acute chest syndrome, pulmonary hypertension, renal failure, and stroke. SCD can affect the quality of life for children and adults. Emotional complications of SCD include depression, anxiety, catastrophizing. Affected individuals often have to miss school or work due to SCD-related complications. And the concern for VOC may prevent individuals from engaging with others or pursuing certain activities. The effect of the sickle cell disease on the patient's quality of life and performance can be seen here in this graphic 
from multiple publications. As you can see at the center of this graphic, we see decreased quality of life for the patients. And that leads to more pain, more pain crisis as they age, difficulty with treatment adherence, a difficulty to transition to adulthood due to lack of access to health care, more hospitalization, more isolation and less support, more missed time at school. And in fact, 12% of the school year could be missed in children with sickle cell disease. And 19.2% of children are held back at least by one grade because of this disease. And in the United States, VOCs are associated with an increase in emergency department visits and hospitalizations. In fact, patients with sickle cell disease are 7 to 30 times more likely to be hospitalized than black patients without sickle cell disease, and 2 to 6 times more likely to visit an ED than comparable patients without sickle cell disease. And emergency department and inpatient treatment costs for sickle cell disease is estimated to be $2.4 billion a year in the United States. Understanding Acute Chest Syndrome and Sickle Cell Disease Acute chest syndrome is one of the most feared complications that can be tackled uh, in the setting of an acute painful event in a patient with sickle cell disease. Clinical findings are typical of a pneumonia picture. You'll see an infiltrate on a chest x-ray. You'll have a fever and hypoxia as well. And the etiology is typically multifactorial. Could be because of a rib infarct causing splinting and atelectasis in a patient with sickle cell disease. Could be due to pulmonary fat embolism happening in the setting of a multi-organ failure. Or could be due to infection because of mycoplasma, chlamydia, viral, or whatnot. It's definitely indistinguishable from pneumonia because the clinical symptoms that are experienced, pleuritic chest pain, fever, cough, tachypnea, and hypoxia are just identical. Laboratory diagnosis would reveal a worsening anemia and an infiltrate on chest radiograph. Acute chest syndrome incidence by the different genotypes varies. SS disease, which is the most severe genotype, is reported at about 12.8 episodes per 100 patient years. S-beta-0 is less at 9.4, SC 5.2, and the S-beta-plus thalassemia population experiences it at about 3.9 episodes per 100 patient years. The treatment of acute chest syndrome, we start at treating the possible underlying infection. We cover with for community-acquired pneumonias and atypical infections. You can utilize bronchodilators and supplemental oxygen to correct the hypoxia. You can also use adequate pain management to minimize the splinting to avoid while avoiding over-sedation. And immediate RBC transfusion therapy is definitely recommended, and that can come in two different forms. In the milder, single-lobe, milder illness of acute chest, you can consider a simple transfusion, especially if the setting, if the clinical setting shows a severe anemia where a simple transfusion is possible. But in the more complicated multi-lobe involvement with acute chest, uh, especially if the patient is rapidly progressing with a worsening hypoxia and a hemoglobin already concentrated between 9 and 10 grams per deciliter, an exchange transfusion is crucial and should happen immediately to prevent high mortality in that situation. Targeting SCD-related complications with disease-directed therapies. Hydroxyurea remains the mainstay of sickle cell disease therapy. It was the first FDA-approved medication for sickle cell disease, and it works by improving the clinical course uh, of the disease by increasing fetal hemoglobin, thereby reducing frequency and intensity of vasoocclusion and vasoocclusive pain crisis. Maximal tolerated doses of hydroxyurea may not be necessary to achieve a therapeutic effect. 
Standard initial dosing starts for adults at 15 milligrams per kilo once a day. And for children, it starts at 20 milligrams per kilo once a day. The dose may be increased by 5 milligrams per kilo per day every 8 to 12 weeks until a maximum tolerated dose of 35 milligrams per kilo daily is reached, or the blood counts start to show uh, a drop in the white count, platelet, or reticulocyte count, and remaining in an acceptable range. Pediatric studies in hydroxyurea have shown similar safety to adult studies in terms of dose titration, and although it's very effective, hydroxyurea is not universally accepted among patients and providers. The multicenter hydroxyurea trial from 1995 reveals patients on hydroxyurea had less, significantly less pain episodes per year as compared to placebo, less admissions to the hospital per year as compared to placebo, less acute chest, less transfusions, and less total number of transfused blood units. And when looking for laboratory effects of hydroxyurea treatment, we notice that hemoglobin will increase in time, mean corpuscular volume increases in time, and fetal hemoglobin increases in time with reduction in the white cell count, the absolute neutrophil count, and the platelet count. And the probability of a 10-year overall survival in patients with sickle cell disease with and without hydroxyurea is vast and significantly in favor of hydroxyurea at 86% versus conventional treatment at 65%. What is the issue with hydroxyurea? Despite the minimal side effects seen with, for patients on hydroxyurea, there is disproportionate perceptions of carcinogenicity, teratogenicity, and reduced fertility. It remains wildly underutilized in the Western world. Pharmacy data show filling one or more of the hydroxyurea prescriptions to be at 22% at different intervals. And access to hydroxyurea in areas of high disease burden needs to improve, such as Africa. Transfusion therapies remain to be utilized, but they're not the mainstay of therapy for, in sickle cell disease for several issues. We have three therapeutic modalities that can be used in transfusion therapy. Um, blood transfusion can be administered as a simple transfusion, as a manual exchange, or an automated red blood cell exchange. However, the main complications of transfusion therapy are linked to alloimmunization, iron overload, hyperhemolytic transfusion reactions due to the transfusion itself, or transfusion-associated circulatory overload. Primary use of transfusion therapy in sickle cell disease remains restricted to specific situations. Chronic RBC transfusion therapy is employed in primary stroke prevention or secondary stroke prevention or recurrent acute chest syndrome. And acute RBC transfusion therapy is employed in severe symptomatic anemia patients. Acute chest syndrome, acute stroke or neurologic complications, or inability to make red blood cells such as an aplastic anemia. One thing to note is transfusions are not indicated for a typical sickle cell vasoclusive pain management. Pain management in sickle cell disease uh, remains key uh, in the setting of an acute pain crisis. Aggressive opioid therapy is the mainstay of therapy. Pain plans should be individualized for patients, and the scope of this presentation does not involve going into the nitty-gritty details of the pain plan. Opioid medication should be individually dosed and given in regular intervals with frequent reassessment for efficacy of pain control. And chronic pain management is poorly studied and therapy is less guideline-based um, and is uh, being more understood uh, currently. Curative therapies and sickle cell disease. Stem cell therapy is the only known cure for sickle cell disease at this time. Optimal outcomes are achieved with matched sibling donor transplants. Alternative donor transplants, such as unrelated donor and half-identical donor, are still under development. 
Autologous gene therapy or gene editing is currently being studied as well, and the potential for cure remains to be determined. Novel agents for prevention of vasoclusive crisis and pain management. As you can see in this graphic, targets to improve um, or um, control sickle cell disease are variable based on the molecular pathophysiology of sickle cell disease. You can attempt to stabilize the sickle red blood cells by increasing fetal hemoglobin. You can work on an anti-sickle hemoglobin effect. You can work on an endothelial blockade effect. You can have an antiplatelet medication effect, and you can work on nitric oxide replacement. And we will go through the next few slides looking at the latest therapies and the way they target sickle cell disease. When we look at anti-inflammatory modulators in sickle cell disease, nitric oxide donors such as arginine and glutamine uh, are first that come to mind. In the cascade of nitric oxide, glutamine and arginine are direct precursors of, of nitric oxide. And supplementation of both arginine and glutamine uh, may be a pathway that can help increase nitric oxide levels and help reduce complications from sickle cell disease. Alternatively, increasing the downstream signal from nitric oxide can also lead to the similar outcomes as noted from increasing uh, glutamine and arginine. Thus, uh, this led to the approval of L-glutamine uh, in July 7, 2017. The indication is to reduce the acute complication of sickle cell disease in adult and pediatric patients five years of age and older. The recommended dose is 5 grams to 15 grams orally twice daily based on body weight. Each dose should be mixed in 8 ounces of cold or room temperature beverage. Uh, the administration is an oral powder, um, and the main effect of this medication was the reduction in the median number of sickle cell crises uh, from four uh, on the placebo arm to three on the L-glutamine arm, and reduction in the median number of hospitalizations for sickle cell pain from three on the placebo arm to two on the L-glutamine arm. And the most common adverse reactions reported were constipation, nausea, headache, abdominal pain, cough, pain in the extremity, back pain, and chest pain. The next agent I would like to discuss is Voxelator, which is an oral once daily uh, direct acting hemoglobin modifier. It prevents sickling of red blood cells by increasing hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen, delaying polymerization of sickle hemoglobin, restoring normal RBC function in preclinical SCD models. The study that was done for Voxelator was a phase two, three trial that was started in December, 2016. The HOPE trial had looked at patients with sickle cell disease and randomized um, and assigned patients in a one-to-one -one ratio between a placebo arm, a 900 milligram arm, and a 1500 milligram arm of Voxelator. The results showed that Voxelator significantly increased the hemoglobin level and reduced markers of hemolysis. Participants who had a hemoglobin response increased by one gram at 24 weeks of the study uh, were seen in 51% of the patients on the 1500 milligram arm as compared to 7% of the patients in the placebo group. The adverse reactions were grade 3 and grade 4 events uh, occurred in 26% of the participants in the 1500 milligram voxelator group uh, versus 23% in the 900 milligram voxelator group and 26% in the placebo group. And the most common adverse reactions were headache, diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea, rash, and pyrexia. This study was followed by the HOPE KITS trial, uh, looking again at Voxelator and, and, and children uh, aged 4 to 11 uh, to receive a once-a-daily dose of Voxelator 1500 milligrams or 1500 milligram weight-based equivalent dosing for up to 48 weeks. 
and results of the study also showed similar response with an increase in hemoglobin by one gram per deciliter uh, from baseline to 24 weeks and 36% of the participants with a very similar profile of adverse reactions in pediatric patients uh, aged 4 to 11. This led the FDA to approval of Vaxelator in November 2019 uh, for adults uh, and for children ages 12 and above, and then in December 2021 for children ages 4 to 11. And the recommended dose is 1,500 milligrams once daily for age 12 and above. And for ages 4 to 11, it's based on body weight, uh, as you can see in this uh, table. The administration is oral, and the hemoglobin response is increasing um, the hemoglobin by 1 gram per deciliter at 24 weeks of the study with reduction in markers of hemolysis. Selectins. So the selectin family, or the selectin-mediated pathway, uh, is the next target that was evaluated uh, in clinical trial. Uh, and selectins are these family of proteins that are involved in uh, white blood cell adhesion and rolling uh, at the endothelium after interaction with the sickle red blood cells. And P-selectin and E-selectins uh, are, um, are uh, proteins that are involved in this process, and they are linked to vasoocclusion in sickle cell disease. Sustain was a clinical trial of crizanluzumab, this uh, monoclonal antibody developed against P-selectin. The study was a phase two multicenter randomized placebo-controlled double-blind 12-month study to assess the safety and efficacy of uh, crizanluzumab in patients with or without hydroxyurea with sickle cell disease. The population of patients ranged from 16 to 65 years of age, and it was patients who experienced between two and 10 sickle cell-related pain events within the preceding 12 months. The results from the study showed a median annual rate of VOC reduction by 45% compared to placebo with uh, a drug effect that was dose-dependent with a post-hoc analysis that showed absence of VOC episodes in patients treated with crizanluzumab in 35% of patients as compared to 17% of patients on placebo. The adverse reactions were most frequently reported uh, were uh, related to pain, nausea, pyrexia, and arthralgia. And severe grade 3 arthralgia and pyrexia were seen in one case. The study had analyzed two different arms, and based on the result of the clinical trial, the 5 milligram per kilo arm was more effective in reducing the rate of painful events. And the difference as seen here in this table was reduction in the high-dose crizanluzumab arm of the crises, median rate of crisis per year by 45%. This led to the FDA approval of crizanluzumab, TMCA, in November 2019 to reduce the frequency of VOCs in adults and pediatric patients aged 16 years and older with sickle cell disease. The recommended dose is 5 milligrams per kilo. The administration is intravenous over a period of 30 minutes on weeks 0, 2, and then every four weeks thereafter. And the most common adverse reactions were nausea, arthralgia, back pain, abdominal pain, and pyrexia. And there's a warning relates to infusion-related reactions um, as this drug is a monoclonal antibody and has been reported to have had infusion reactions. When it comes to ongoing clinical trials, uh, there's several clinical trials uh, going on right now with both crizanluzumab and Voxelator, as you can see in this table. But uh, there's even more therapeutics around the corner uh, targeting uh, both mechanisms of hemolysis and vasoocclusion and sickle cell disease. In summary, for the therapeutics, L-glutamine is the medication that's available. It works on the nitric oxide pathway, and its main effect is reduction of vasoocclusive events by 25% compared to placebo. It is a powder that has to be dissolved 
Boxelator is a hemoglobin affinity inducer that works on reduction of hemolysis. Its main effect is increase in hemoglobin by one gram per deciliter and reduction of hemolysis markers such as reticulocytes and bilirubin. It is an oral agent. And crizolizumab is a monoclonal antibody inhibitor of P-selectin. It is an IV agent that's infused once a month. And its main effect is reduction of VOC uh, by 45% compared to placebo and prolonging the time to the next painful event. Now we switch to some practical application case series. Case study number one, a pediatric patient. Uh, this is a six-year-old girl with sickle cell beta thalassemia, has VOCs requiring hospitalization every three to four months, takes 20 milligrams per kilo of hydroxyurea, and one, one milligram of folic acid daily, requires blood transfusions approximately every six weeks to maintain a hemoglobin at six grams per deciliter, and is symptomatic when hemoglobin is less than six grams per deciliter. The white count is 2.6 thousand, and the platelets is 130 thousand. Takes Desferox, uh, daily for iron overload, and a donor search is currently being conducted for possible stem cell transplant. The question, what would you recommend to decrease this patient's need for RBC transfusions? Uh, A, decrease her dose of hydroxyurea to 10 milligrams per kilo daily. B, start the patient on 900 milligrams of Voxelator PO daily, based on weight. C, start her on 5 milligrams PO twice a day of L-glutamine, based on weight. D, prescribe 4,000 units of erythropoietin once weekly, or E, make no changes in her current treatment regimen. And the answer to this question is B, start her on 900 milligrams of Voxelator uh, based on weight daily because her main problem is um, the degree of anemia that she suffers from and requires a transfusion. And definitely decreasing the hydroxyurea dose is not an answer that, that should be entertained. In fact, one thought would be to increase the dose of hydroxyurea for this patient. However, the white count is already at a restricted range at 2.6 thousand. And if you increase the hydroxyurea dose here, the white count would drop further and you'll get into uh, potentially leukopenia and neutropenia. We don't want that. L-glutamine utilization is not um, known to help improve hemoglobin uh, as discussed in this case. We do not know the status of the kidney function for this patient, but if there was some element of kidney disease, considerations for using of erythropoietin is possible, uh, but it's not an option given the lack of the knowledge of that in this case. And definitely the answer is B, which is starting the patient on 900 milligrams of Voxelator. Case study two, a young adult patient. Uh, this is a 70-year-old black man with hemoglobin SS disease, admitted to the hospital at least twice monthly for the last year for recurrent VOCs. His teachers have recommended that he repeat his junior year in high school because of so many missed school days, again, showing the quality of life impact and, and um, of sickle cell disease. His prescriptions include hydroxyurea at 1,000 milligrams daily and one milligram of folic acid, but he's poorly adherent and compliant. His baseline hemoglobin is 8.5 grams per deciliter. His white count is 7.5 thousand. His platelets are 260 thousand, and his fetal hemoglobin is 22%, which is quite good. The question, what would you recommend to reduce his hospitalization for VOC? Double his dose of hydroxyurea, which he already does not take as much. Increase his daily folic acid dose to 2 milligrams. Prescribe crizolizumab 5 milligrams per kilo IV every two weeks, then once monthly. Prescribe a baby aspirin daily or none of the above. The obvious answer here is C, prescribe crizolizumab 5 milligrams per kilo IV Q2 weeks, then once a month afterwards. 
because the, this patient mainly suffers of recurrent painful events that keep him from continuing his studies and affect his daily, his daily life. And this makes the most sense. Uh, doubling his dose of hydroxyurea would work if the patient has been taking the medication, even at a dose of a gram of hydroxyurea daily, if he is adherent to the medicine, then he would have less painful events. Um, and then increasing the folic acid or prescribing aspirin has no role at all in reducing the painful events. Case study number three, adult patient. This is a 34-year-old black man with hemoglobin SS, moved to the city and seeing us for the first time, takes one gram of hydroxyurea, one milligram of folic acid daily, 20 grams daily of L-glutamine, with a current hemoglobin of 9.7 grams per deciliter. The white count is 11.4 thousand and the platelets are 360,000. Total bilirubin is 2.6 grams per deciliter. Blood smear shows sickle cells. He has had an exchange transfusion for acute chest and priapism. He has recently been admitted to the hospital three times in the past six weeks for recurrent pain episodes in arms and legs. Currently taking hydrocodone acetaminophen for pain every six hours and two milligrams of hydromorphone orally every three hours for breakthrough pain. He rates his pain currently at 8 over 10. The question, what would you recommend to address this patient's pain events? Imaging of the hips for AVN or avascular necrosis, starting on a long-acting narcotic, adding crizanlizumab to reduce the incidence of VOCs, setting up a pain contract because you suspect that he's overutilizing narcotics, or adding voxelator at 1,500 milligrams daily. Reviewing the case of this patient, uh, he is on hydroxyria, L-glutamine, and still is experiencing frequent pain. He has been hospitalized more frequently in the last few weeks with recurrent episodes of pain in the arms and the legs. It doesn't look like he really has a localized pain to consider AVN of the hip, but at one point in time it will be, given his age, it will be suggested to image the hips uh, for AVN evaluation if there is uh, localized pain there. He, it doesn't look like he's experiencing daily pain, uh, so considering a long-acting narcotic at the current time may not be the best choice. Adding crizanlizumab to reduce the incidence of VOCs makes the most sense here because it looks like since his move, he's been hospitalized more often. It looks like a more of a, an event happening acutely more than chronically, so uh, option C makes most sense. Setting up a pain contract because you suspect that he's overutilizing. This is not the case right now, but it's not a bad idea to consider this in the future if you notice more utilization uh, and more days of being in pain than not. And then the option E, which is adding voxelator, does not help with reducing uh, or controlling pain. Finally, the key takeaways. Sickle cell disease is a very common uh, disease with multiple disease-specific acute and chronic complications and implications. To formulate optimal treatment plans for the management of sickle cell disease, you need to assess the patient's needs and specific concerns, as well as current guideline recommendations. Basal occlusion can cause both organ damage and pain. And individualized care pain plans help improve and get better pain control. Crizanlizumab is now FDA approved to reduce the frequency of VOCs in adults and pediatric patients aged 16 years and older. Boxelator is now FDA approved for the treatment of sickle cell disease in adults and pediatric patients aged four years and older. And L-glutamine is FDA approved to reduce the acute complications of sickle cell disease in adult and pediatric patients aged five years and older. Thank you, and thank you for participating in this activity. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. 
This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.